You're listening to Southwell and Hardcore with me, Jack McEnroy, and my co-host, Steve Walsh. Hello. On today's podcast, we're talking about four superhero comic book films, all shot in part in South London, all sequels. Uh, we've got Avengers, Age of Ultron, which is currently in cinemas, Thor, The Dark World, Fantastic Four, Rise of the Silver Surfer, and Superman 3. Our guest is Gavin Graham, co-head of 3D at Double Negative. Gavin worked on Avengers and Thor. Hello. Just before we go on, Gavin, right, on IMDb, yeah. it says that you're also known as Gavin Bubbles Graham. Yeah. <laughs> Is that accurate? Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> yes. On Tomb Raider 2, uh, Cradle of Life, uh, I did Bubbles for a whole year. All right. <laughs> so it started off, the producer on the show would come in every day and say, how are the Bubbles? And then it would just, over time, turn into Bubbles. And yeah, before too long, I was Bubbles. And then they yeah, stuck that in as my credit, which I did not agree to. So they're like bubble baddies in it. I've never, see, I've never seen it before. Have you not seen it? There's a bit where she punches a shark. Right, right, and Bubbles. And uh, Bubbles needed out. to come out of her and the shark. Great. So you're working out the different bubbles that a human and a shark would make. Yeah. Having punched a shark or having been punched by a human. Exactly. The stuff we have to do. Incredible. Cal- <laughs> Calibre of guests we're getting. <laughs> Your brother, Stephen, has been on the show several times, probably about yes. five times, I would say. Yeah, I'm going to try and steal his thunder. Take over his place. <laughs> He's got to go quite far to outdo him. He's quite a, he's quite a tremendous guest, though, isn't he? Yeah. yeah he's our uh, resident musicologist, so you can become our resident co-head of... Really. <laughs> uh, that's, that's pretty safe, safe, I think. Anybody remember... When I carried a nuke through a wormhole? No, it's never come up. Save New York? Never heard that. Recall that? A hostile alien army came charging through a hole in space. We're standing 300 feet below it. We're the Avengers. We can bust arms dealers all the live long day, but that up there, that's... That's the end game. How are you guys planning on beating them? Together. Right, so Avengers Age of Ultron, the second Avengers film, uh, as we said, currently at cinemas. Not out in America till next week. No, it's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. I've had people sort of message me from the States asking, like, how is it that don't <laughs> spoil anything? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> so you're like, okay, I'll talk in very general terms uh, about this film. We saw it at Streatham last week, so Streatham's beating New York. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to give some kind of... Background and synopsis, Steve, to the film and comic. So the Avengers are essentially Marvel's premier superhero team. Well, well, well. Fantastic Four. Exactly. Or the X Men, even. Oh, exactly. Yeah. So uh, the X Men traditionally have been more top commercially three, successful, um, and the Fantastic Four, the original. But the idea of the Avengers is that it's Earth's mightiest hero, so it collects together the top tier heroes uh, from Marvel. Who, who don't fall into the other categories. So the thing about the Fantastic Four is they're a family, they have other members, but it tends to be a pretty stable lineup. The X-Men, you have to be a mutant, generally, to qualify. Whereas with the Avengers, it tends to be the people who are prominent characters in solo comics that gather together into their own group. So it's kind of... I mean, I'm going off topic already. <laughs> but say that Spider-Man, he's the obvious omission here, is he? Until recently, yes, but he has... like. There's a thing now, there's been a thing recently where the Avengers became so big at Marvel, and, and at Marvel now they are unquestionably the, the, the most important superhero team. 
mainly. As, are you talking about weekly comics? Here? Yeah, in yeah. terms of the monthly comics, and that is partly because in the nineties, Marvel went bankrupt and did a fire sale on the film rights to their characters, and lost Fantastic Four to Twentieth Century Fox, lost the X Men to Sony. So there's off the record uh, stories of people at Marvel who don't want. Fantastic Four and X-Men to be as prominent as the Avengers because they can't sell merchandising in the same way. Apparently, um, the guy who's running Marvel at the very top has forbidden there being any images of the Fantastic Four in Marvel offices, which is incredibly sad. Um, And like the comic is in the process of being cancelled temporarily when the film comes out because they don't want to support a film they can't make money off of. But they didn't... Yeah, like co... Okay. They well, they just it, they make a certain amount of money from the license, but they can't make money off of merchandising. Whereas with the Avengers, yeah, they can make all, all of the money. It's all profit. It. Yeah, we'll get to the kind of various eras of Marvel films at some stage. But to set us up for Avengers: Age of Ultron, Steve. So it's a sequel to the Avengers, which is good because the film hits the ground running. We start off with an action sequence. So in the Avengers, you get the team coming together, and it is like the comics, the greatest. Of Thor, yes, Hawkeye, yep, Scarlett Johansson, <laughs> Quido, <laughs> yeah, uh, the Incredible Hulk, yep, Iron Man, yep, all these characters that you know—is that all of them? Yeah, did I get them all? Should you get Captain America? Yeah, I don't think. He's oh, Captain America, America as well. Yeah, the one I used to buy as a kid. Yeah. He's a big one. He's a big one. Um, yeah. So in the first film, they gathered together by a common enemy, who is Loki, which is a nice nod to the comics because Samuel Jackson. <laughs> it's You've not been paying attention. In, in the comics, it's Loki who brings the Avengers together in Avengers number one in 1963. Interesting point about the Avengers uh, comics: Hulk is a founding member. Captain America isn't. Doesn't join for another few issues when he's uh, released from the ice and becomes like the, the quintessential Avenger. So by the second film, you see them starting off in action, and it's established that they are. Uh, regularly teaming up and working together to take on threats. Mostly still bits of Hydra that have survived since the events of Captain America 2, The Winter Soldier. And Captain America is now seen as the boss. Well, there's a a scene where... I think the the official designation is like co-leader between Mm. Iron Man and Captain America. like you at Double Negative. (laughs) You're Captain America (laughs) 2. Yeah, yeah. Stark makes the point in the film that he like funds everything, and puts it, which again is very similar to comics. In the comics, I think the the sort of general consensus is the core of the Avengers is Thor, Captain America, and Iron Man. They're the three most important characters. Um, in the comics, Ant Man and the Wasp are founding members and very important to the history of the team. Um, we don't get those in the film. Yeah, Ant Man's on his way, isn't he? Ant Man's on his way. But, you know, and this is a good example of the differences between the films and the comics. Because in the comics, and obviously uh, Avengers 2, Age of Ultron, is about the rise of Ultron, this robotic character that's created to be a peacekeeping force that turns on the thing and becomes their enemy. And in the comics, he's created by Hank Pym, who is Ant-Man. But obviously in the films, it's a thing where the way it's been established with the film releases... You don't yet have an Ant Man in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It does Ant-Man. work, but Iron much Man, better, Iron much Man, better for the Tony films. Stark. 
Yeah. Tony Stark and a bit of Bruce Banner as well. So there is this whole thing about... The science it, bros. Exactly, yeah. Science, without being checked, will give us terrible, dangerous things. To set the film up in terms of the background of the film, the first film and this one, both directed and written as well by yep. Joss Whedon, yep. who um, created Buffy the Vampire Slayer, uh, among other things. Great choice. Uh, when the first one was announced, and they said that he was... I was like, I've never seen him direct like a big film. But I was like, whatever else happens, the dialogue's going to be great because he's known for a punch dialogue, does well with an ensemble cast, does well with fantastical elements within stories. Yes, gives time to female characters as well. He puts as much uh, effort in. Well, you look at uh, the Black Widow in both films and she's just given uh, key roles in terms of uh, battle sequences and, you know, prominent characters as well. So, Gavin, what did you work on on Avengers Age of Ultron? So the main chunk of work that we did was the Korea sequence. Um, so everything from, um, you know, well, the whole heist thing with the Ultron's travel. How, how spoilery are we going to get here? Massively spoilery. Massively spoilery. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Really Don't give long. away deaths. Uh, so, and so, yeah, so it was, it was Korea. Uh, everything that happens in Korea. So they uh, swoop in. There's Ultron's traveling along in the back of a truck. They need to bust in. They need to fly the truck away. Then there's the whole drama with the train. Uh, runaway train, Quicksilver is running around. They have to stop it, you know, prevent people from dying. All that stuff. Um, yeah, all of that stuff was us. So the major effects bit there would be the flying truck and Quicksilver clearing out the path of the train. Well, there's so much in there. Yeah, that's the thing. Effects. Some of it, yeah, so, so much of it becomes invisible that right. it's really hard to say, you know, how much of it. Yeah, there's the obvious stuff like sticking a big robot in there. <laughs> that yeah, wasn't there. That. <laughs> right, so that's one um, thing. Spider in a big suit. You've got stuff like the Quinjet um, right. and the thrusters and all that kind of stuff to go with it. Same with Iron Man. You know, you might have thrusters. You've got Iron Man himself. Uh, even Captain America's shield. You know, they've got multiple different versions on set, but typically if he throws it, it's not going to look very good. Yeah. The minute so he we really would replace that. Um, <laughs> and then just environments. You know, the, the whole. Um, pfft, they, they cleared out um, big chunks of car parks and then we had to populate it back out with, you know, smashed up cars and all sorts of different set dressing. Um, so we had to go out there and photograph, you know, hundreds of thousands of photographs through this area called Olympic Park um, and then recreate it digitally and stick everything in there. Cause mayhem. So the South London scene in the film is kind of effects free, isn't it? It's the uh, Riverley Ballroom in Broccoli and it's Captain America... As a kind of, I don't know, fantasy slash flashback. Yeah, fever dream, if you mm. like, Steve. Um, and it's, <laughs> it's a load of, you know, GIs dancing about. It's obviously meant to be America, isn't it? No, I don't think it... Well, I didn't take it as America, because oh, okay. uh, Carter was there. For me... It, oh, a load of Brits. I mean, it's, a, it's, an a, American it's a fantasy, because it's set after the war, and it's him and Peggy Carter together. So it's it's predicated on him not being in the ice and, and frozen for 50 years. Um but uh, yeah, so I read it as being just a dance hall in London, where because yeah. you'd imagine after you know the way the war unfolded and uh, a lot of Americans were stationed back in the UK, getting ready to go back to the states. So it could well be set in South London as well as being shot. Yeah, in yeah we'll call it broccoli. We'll call it broccoli. Mm. So going back to the effects for a minute, though, it is incredible what what can be done now, isn't it? 
Yeah. You know, you, we've reached the. Would, would you agree that we've reached the point where you could just make anything look realistic? Given enough time and money. <laughs> <laughs> like we, we weren't there 10 years ago, were we? No, God, no. I mean, we'll be talking about some of these films from a few years ago. <laughs> we weren't quite there. Um, but no, we, we are absolutely now. There is, you know, of this film, at least three quarters of it will contain visual effects. Um, you know, most, in fact, mo- a lot of it was shot in London, South London, and you wouldn't even know it. You know, Tony Stark's science lab was all out in Shepparton. Um, so, you know, Shepparton and Longcross are two of the studios that they used, but we can just make it look like it's anywhere. You know, you just stick New York in the background and suddenly it's <laughs> New York. Um, so, yeah, we, we can create any environment. We can put stuff up in space. We can, you know, whatever needs to be done. Click yeah, your fingers. Avengers Tower's got a, a great view of the Empire State Building, yeah. which is just a really good thing of, like, establishing location. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, over their uh, shoulders out the window, you're like, it's New York, isn't it? It's New York. That's definitely where this tower is. Yeah. I mean, it's what you'd say they go with a lot of these films is, you know, they want to establish the scope, so they go all over the world. They're in, you know, uh, Eastern Europe or Sokovia. They're in <laughs> Africa, Wakanda. You know, they, they're travelling all over the place trying to establish the scale of it. And sometimes they'll go out and they'll shoot there. You know, they did shoot in Korea. Um, but sometimes they don't and they just say to us, you know, can you create these different planets, these different countries without leaving your office? How, how early in the process are you involved? Um, in the case of Avengers 2, we got involved about a year, just over a year before release. So right, but I mean, it's a, where to uh, principal photography? Just before principal photography, yeah, yeah, yeah. So just planning the South Korea shoot, figuring out, you know, how many of us need to go out there what kit we need to bring out, what we need to capture, that kind of stuff. Did you go out? I didn't go out, no. Did you go out sometimes? No, I haven't been out for a while. <laughs> Last time I was on set was probably Harry Potter 6 or Stardust, whichever one of them came first. Right, right, right. It's been a while. So you're there at the monitor going, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's completely wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so you enjoyed the first one a lot, Steve? Yeah, the first one I think is one of uh, my favourite of the... the new wave superhero films and what about uh, Avengers Age of Ultron I didn't enjoy it as much but I think that's always the case with sequels isn't it you know Godfather 2 isn't it Toy Story (laughs) (laughs) always Empire Strikes Back (laughs) but also it's the other thing is as well it's hard to think of a slate of films of this sort of scale so I think I don't think there ever has been no so you have to sort of take into account it's very hard to sort of judge a film individually without taking into account the, the larger role it's got. This film does a lot of heavy lifting in terms of setting up five other films, at least. Um, and while I, I don't think it's as enjoyable as the first one, the first one was very much establishing. It was more fun. I think it was a lot looser, the first one, in terms of what it had to do. It had to bring these uh, group of people together, show they could work together effectively, and have them defeat a baddie. Whereas this one, all those things happen. They're brought together... They, they face an enemy, but they're trying to set up characters, set up arcs, set up different spurs of, of narrative for the next few films. And I think I think the sort of the burden of that shows in terms of of the script and the directing as well. I don't think it's as funny as the first one. I think it's a bit no. I thought, in terms I thought of the, jokes. the jokes, a lot of the jokes didn't land at all. I thought we were we were in a kind of. I mean, it was a Thursday evening at five thirty. We watched it, so it was not not by any means full, um, and there was just no laughter. And that may, that's probably because the cinema was, you know, not close to empty, but it was like a fifth or most. So maybe it's not fair, but 
I don't know, it's just like if these jokes were happening and no one was laughing. I wasn't anyway, a couple of times. But I, I laughed um, at a couple of things, but like not yeah. in the same way, like having watched, and again, it's you, you, you can't compare them directly just because they're films based on comics or superhero films. Guardians of the Galaxy has a very different energy, a very different tone, it's a very different film in terms of what it's trying to do. Um, and it is, you know, very much more of a, a, a romp than uh, Age of Ultron, but that had a different energy to it and was much more fun to watch. Similarly, uh, just individual moments, like in the first Avengers film, there's... Uh, have you seen the first Avengers yeah, film? Yeah. Right. The, the, the scene where Loki goes on what looks to be a very typical bad guy, third act rant about how his power is unparalleled and he's a god and how, and the Hulk just cuts him off, grabs his leg and just whacks him from side to side yeah, like yeah, a yeah, funny character for like ages mm. and then as he walks away mutters puny god and it's just like a, a, a great visual gag, a great verbal gag taps into the comics without alienating the, the audience there it's just a brilliant sequence there's another bit where the Hulk punches someone out of frame in the yeah. first film yeah him and Thor go on a bit of a rampage and they, just, but they, and they riff on that in the second one mm. where uh, the uh, Iron Man Hulk Buster Armour does the same sort of and that's the thing It's that's the, the, the difficult sequels and revisiting things and, and riffing off of ideas because they did something similar with Ultron where he sort of said oh you expect me to monologue yes. and he didn't monologue yeah, yeah, which yeah. I thought was good yeah. it's not yeah. like funny yeah. but it was nice uh, yeah, and uh, uh, having said that about dialogue, I think uh, the uh, Ultron stuff was great. I thought it was a, a brilliant read on the character, who in the comics is very sort of formal and stiff and, you know, stereotypical um, villain. Whereas there's bits like in Age of Ultron where he's like muttering over his, uh, under his breath and just sort of like, you know, incredulous of what's happening. You're like, yeah, this is a much more human uh, take on yeah, I thought he was. A, that was the kind of highlight of the film. Is it James Spader? He is James Spader. Yeah, I thought he was. Yeah. He stood out really. Like in, you know, so I didn't think it was particularly funny. And I thought in the first one, or in some of the other films, even there's there's some good character stuff. Like you know, obviously the obvious thing is like Iron Man in the first Iron Man. Yeah, film. Tony Stark. You know, Robert Downey Jr. Um, and you know Samuel Jackson in a, in I can't remember which one. But other bits where people are like you know people are kind of. It's some interesting character stuff. Yeah. And especially in the first film, the Mark Ruffalo, Robert Downey Jr. dynamic was yeah, really good, yeah. I thought. But I didn't really think there was any of that in this. The reception of Ultron, well, I kind of didn't really get on board with... They really with... tried to sort of push the Black Widow Hulk thing, mm. which you can understand the reasons for wanting to do that. And I thought it was very interesting to start with the whole lullaby sequence and the idea that she's helped in game control of the situation. And him, you know, realising at the end that even if they've got control in that situation, someone else can come along that makes him lose control and therefore he's not safe. But within that, there's like clunky bits, the bit where like she's talking to him about being a monster and she's talking about her past and it's a fascinating sort of backstory she's got and I really enjoyed, out of all the sort of like fantasy sequences you get, there's a, you know, spoiler bit I suppose, um, but the, the, the Scarlet Witch essentially hexes all the team at various points and they see like their worst nightmares or visions of, of possible futures and like her one is is revisiting her training with the KGB to become this hyper efficient killer and it's it's things they've explored in the Agent Carter miniseries on on TV and it is it looks really sort of fascinating it just makes me want to see a Black Widow film uh, more than they're ever actually going to do it um but and it was sort of visited but then when they're sort of trying to reference that into a relationship with Banner um there's a bit where she's like 
you know, it's talking about being sterilised so she can run better kill her. And she like looks at him and goes, and you thought you were the only monster. And you're like, yeah. it's an odd sort of jarring... It was, yeah. I thought that was weak, man. I, I thought the whole <laughs> Hulk stuff just... I, thought, I found it very one note. You know, like... It, this, well, this is the problem with the Hulk, and this is what. Yeah, what I'm not. I'm not a huge fan. Of, I don't. It but, just seems like the Hulk. They struggle. Whatever he's been adapted, they struggle to. Except in the first Avengers film, where they did it really yeah, well yeah, by yeah. having just like moments, great moments, but not giving him an actual story. Can't they shift him onto some like Fortress of Solitude or something for a, <laughs> well, they, for a film or two? Well, they, that's what happened at the end. In, yeah, in right, the pre-release, right. they've been building Spoiler. up that this would be Black Widow's film. People were saying, why yeah. does Black Widow get her own film? And it was, yeah. well, she plays such a big part in this one. But right. it seemed more like they were giving much more screen time to Hawkeye to try and yes. flesh him out a bit. That, yeah. And that was another bit where it fell down. Like, yeah. I mean, the recent run of Hawkeye, Steve, what will you call it? The, the uh, fraction and yeah, Arja, is it? Fraction and Arja are the main. Yeah, and it's just tremendous. Some yeah. of my favourite comics I've ever read. Just beautiful artwork. Really, really funny as well. Just absolutely bang on. You know, get it. What, what should they? What's it called? My life as a weapon or something. The first trade is my life as a weapon. I mean, you yeah, yeah. get hold of that. Yeah. yeah, start with that. But like Hawkeye in this, he's kind of. They try and do like a kind of shortcut to drama with like yes. you know I don't I don't want to spoil it but they give him a bit of a kind of side story. And well, that's spoiling it to sort of. Say yeah, it. he's got a family. He's got a family. Yeah, they're so much a family, man. It's, it suddenly gives this thing of like, he's got more at stake. And... Uh, the other thing as well with Hawkeye, like, he's just in the wrong film. Like, at the end, like the kind of finale, which goes on for a while, you know, it's all of them together fighting against the baddie. Again, not quite a spoiler, is it? But like, you've got <laughs> like, um, uh, the Paul Bettany character. What's his Vision. name? Vision. Vision. Um, who's just like really good, like sort of incredible powers and stuff. And you've got um, these people with phenomenal powers, and like, they get the exact amount of screen time as a guy with a bow and arrow gets. He's just I, in but, the wrong place, man. I, I, but I think the challenge there is then to have him look as dynamic as that. Just with, and I think they do a great job of it personally. They do it well, and I, I love think, Jeremy Renner. I'm a big fan of, yeah. of him as an actor. I mean, you know, we we talked about it. Um, if it was before, but no, uh, you know, my thing with Jeremy Renner is I, I love Jeremy Renner as an actor, and obviously, in the first film, he sidelined through necessity in the plot and just turned into a zombie essentially. Mm-hmm. So, you don't really get a lot of Jeremy Renner out of it. And I, w- I was saying to Jack, like, Jeremy Renner as the Hawkeye from that particular run of the comics would be great. Where it's this guy, and the premise of that comic series is essentially this is what he does when he's not an Avenger, mm-hmm. and he's like living in an apartment block in New York that's getting bullied uh, by Russian mafia bosses that want to... And, and it's all about gentrification mm. and property. And it's all these sort of modern concerns. And, you know, him getting on with his neighbours and uh, who looks after his dog when he's, like... Uh, Avenging. Yeah. And it's this whole thing about what is your life like? And it's just... It's this very down-to-earth and, and, and very, as you say, very funny. And Jeremy Renner would absolutely ace that. And, you know, it shouldn't be a case of... Um, transferring the comics onto film because that's pointless as well and you want new and different things to happen but just with this the whole sort of family man thing just seemed a real sort of heavy gear change for me so how do you feel about it Kevin? Um, obviously I need to separate myself what should I say? I should separate myself from uh, my professional life and and just give my personal opinions Um, no but I do do think that um, it's I think Marvel are basically acing it at the minute Mm. like from film to film to film they are, you know, basically nailing it. But with a film like this, it is so dense. There's so much to cram in there. You've got so many different audiences. You don't know 
who's seen what. You know, you might have seen Agents of Shield. You might not have seen Winter Soldier. You might, you know, there's so many different ways you can come at it, and they have to try and make the film work for everybody while simultaneously setting up, you know, the next five years of films. So there's so much to achieve that I'm amazed they even managed to get, you know, a decent film out of it. Um, but I, I did find there was still some of the humours there. I mean, you, you, you've gotten to know the characters, and, and that's really what makes it, compared to some of the other superhero films where, you know, it's, it, you don't get as invested in it. You don't, you know, switch it on and feel like you're in a room with old friends again. You know, it, Thor, I thought, was hilarious. There was that great scene with the hammer. Yeah, that was good. You know, re- some really, really funny stuff in there. Um, Tony Stark, obviously, he's Mr. Charisma. He, again, he's, he's, you know, really, really good presence all the way through it. Um, you know, there's there's aspects of it that I wasn't that amazed by. I think there was there were some things where there was mild plot holes in terms of you know where's Pepper Potts, where's Jane. Is it one point we go? Yeah, she's Pepper Potts is always she's she's busy. <laughs> Jane sooner signs. <laughs> and they try and turn it into like a character thing where they're like competing about who's got the best goal. Yeah, but it just sort of really uh, draws into the point that they're they're not going to be. Uh, about for this one yeah. but then again in terms of missing people like I was I couldn't understand why we didn't get the falcon in the battle at the end and mm. then he turns up right at the end I would say like, there are enough people in that battle there are enough well. people but my thing is if you're trying to sell it as and this is why we're going to have a new team of mm. Avengers he has to be in action to sort of earn that spot yeah love his and also uh, they have the falcon then. <laughs> you could you could uh Make a criticism of the sort of power set of the team in that a lot of it is very samey in that they have enhanced strength and they're good at fighting. Yeah. So you have like Thor, Hulk, Captain America. You know, Captain America's a shield which sort of changes One of them throws a shield, everyone throws a hammer. Yeah. That's, so there's a lot of, of similar things. So someone like Quicksilver, someone like the Scarlet Witch, the vision, you know, was quite refreshing. Yeah, they were great additions. And and the Falcon, I think, does add something, you know, you haven't seen Captain America 2, The Winter Soldier. And, like, there's a a great sort of action sequence with the Falcon in that. And I think the actor who plays him is brilliant. I think the sort of, the the dynamic between, um, and again, this is is what you're saying about which films have you seen, which films haven't you seen. Um, In The Winter Soldier, there's a great dynamic, not only between the Falcon and Captain America, but also with Black Widow as well. Mm. They have a great sort of relationship between the three of them, where they're sort of very sort of chatty and jokey. And obviously, it's tough because this one is so packed already to sort of give them space to do that. But I I would have liked to... I think they could have taken the Hulk out of it, man. I think we could have lived without the Hulk in this film. I I would have taken the Hulk out of it. Stick him into the Fortress of Solitude at end of Act (laughs) 1. I mean, and then we'll just we'll crack on. Yeah, I, I I agree with you. I think you could have the moment where he's concerned about losing control earlier and take him off the board because um, there's not too much more that he does that hasn't been seen before. But I think, like you were saying, Gavin, earlier about Marvel knocking it out of the park every time, or words to that effect. Mm. It's just done to such a high standard, and we'll we'll come on to uh, Thor two in a minute, like. From, from top to bottom like as much as I don't love it and like when people were going this is a masterpiece at Marvel this is a masterpiece like that I think is ridiculous but even still it's done to you know from the writing to the like these you look at people playing bit parts like yeah, you know yeah, Oscar yeah. nominated yeah. Oscar winning actors yeah. you know the effects of like great not just the effects but like the design so the like a film like Avatar is, yeah, like people yeah. raved about how good Avatar was yeah. but I thought the kind of design of the characters and world and stuff was horrendous I hated it Whereas this, like, 
you know, Ultron, like when he turns up as like a kind of Terminator looking robot, it looks great. Even mm. what, even down to the way they did his mouth is it, it, just really, well, really good. The design of him, it's odd because it's, you know, as you say, um, a metal faced robot. But with the work they do in terms of the, the facial expressions, you get a feeling of character from mm. him. You get him sneering, you get him grinning. I don't know how, because he's got a fixed mouth, but, you know, and that's partly Spader's voice performance. But it is tremendous in terms of. Uh, how also how he moves, you know, it's a, a, a wonderful sort of, uh, sort of storytelling device. Mm. They, they that's a great, move. great baddie. I mean, obviously, yeah. it's from the comics that I've not read, but you weren't so keen on Vision, though, Steve, where you commented about his eyes. Well, yeah, because uh, you work on Vision at all, Greg. We didn't work on Vision, no. <laughs> we, I mean, and, and Ultron, you know, we we did the bits of Ultron where he was in our sequence, but then he's also scattered throughout the film. So, right. um, in terms of designing it, it was a bit of a weird one where. You know, there'll be lots of companies working on it in parallel, and then you would sort of, you know, you'd reach a certain point. They go, okay, great, yeah, we really like what you're doing there. Share that with the other companies, and you'd pass it across. You'd have that back and forth with different places. So everyone's kind of raising it and raising it, and they're trying to push everyone. You know, almost square you off against each other to try and you know get the best possible Ultron. Post production Avengers, aren't you? (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, I think I'll probably give it free popcorns. (laughs) <laughs> yeah this is the thing I mean as I say I didn't enjoy it as much as the first Avengers film and I'd probably put it sort of mid-table-ish in terms of Marvel films generally but there's not really any bad Marvel films in the current sort of slate of things I like, I've enjoyed all of them um, and I did uh, enjoy this one but uh, as I say I just had a couple of, but then it's also a thing of you can't help you know I'm very aware sitting down this is the Marvel Cinematic Universe it's a very it's a different world to it's something we'll talk about with the Thor film as well where there's different approaches and different takes on the characters and the scenarios but the whole attitude to Thor's hammer just threw me completely because I'm like I'm very much there's one person who's mm. worthy who can pick it up and it's Thor and like having like Captain America make it shift slightly is mm. good mm. but there's other bits where things just being bandied around and I'm like well, I don't know if this is <laughs> it's, it, and it, it, you know it's a, a good and it is a thing where within this film and the, the sort of mechanics of this universe that's entirely legitimate and it's a great scene but for me and this is me bringing my own baggage I'm like whoa whoa whoa, whoa. what are we doing here <laughs> <laughs> so it's hard to sort of have an objective uh, objective uh, judgment yeah. on, on that basis my only issue with the film is that you know, I think it maybe aims a bit too adult. I think I'd love to see it just played a little bit more for kids. Because it's, you know, they're trying to sell the lunchboxes. The Disney stores are full of the costumes. But there's swearing in it. Yeah, there's, yeah. You know, and they make a yeah, thing out of the swearing. You can't even ignore it. Yeah, I've, I've also found that a little bit unnecessary. I also found that running gag of Captain America not swearing. I thought that was pretty weak. Like, Yeah, it's very I, sort of clumsy in terms of yeah, America joke it's it? been done isn't it yeah. but yeah like you said like, like, it's a opening soldier. line like the, <laughs> Robert Downey Jr. swearing yeah, mm. yeah. what did you think about that opening sequence I really liked it I mean it was it was uh, you know great to see them all doing their thing you know you get that opening one of the shots in that opening sequence where it's you know you get all the character moments you see this one that one this one that one it's great you need those kind of iconic things it's done like Sorry. a kind of... Was it meant to be like kind of computer game visuals? Is that the idea? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. The, I the think it did sort of yeah, feel like that. But I, I think that's perfect. I think it was a, 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 the perfect opening scene in that we know all these characters already so you don't need to do introduction your own. It's just like a reminder. Yeah, yeah. Remember this guy can do this? And this is what I'm going to hammer and this is what I'm going to yeah. shield. But also, and, and again, it's something we'll talk about across the other films as well, there's different approaches to battles in superhero films. And 
there's some that I prefer other, rather than others. And what you have, particularly in, in the, the first Avengers film, this Avengers film, I think is, is great in terms of a one a swarm that they all get to like fight against loads of people and it's just mad and ridiculous, <laughs> yeah. but also a definite baddie that has to be taken down. It's a boss, essentially. So it is like a video game mm. uh, sort of style of storytelling. And in the first one, we had like the Chitari who were like swarming down. There's like too many of them. Mm. It's impossible they're going to win. Um, but it just gives them loads of opportunity to just smash into them and just have these mad fights and throwing people and these giant things turn up. But then how they win in the end, they deactivate the whole thing rather than knock them all out individually. Uh, and in the second one, you've got uh, the little Ultrons, essentially. Mm. And you've got you know Ultron Prime who's ready to be taken down. But it is this thing of there's loads of them, far too many for it to be uh, in any way acceptable they're going to win. And mm. then they win. That's yeah, that's the, great. That bit where it all slows down for a minute. Yeah. And you see just how many they are, there are. Yeah. But then the way they kind of defeat the bad guy, I thought was sort of lacking myself. They all, they all kind of gather together and just shoot their various rays at him. And then yeah. they win. But you know that whole finale of you know a, a city kind of being lifted out of the ground, I thought was pretty spectacular. Yeah. Mm. But I feel we should move on, Steve. Hello. I accept your surrender. Anyone else? Thor, The Dark World, the sequel, 2013. Thor, again, start a, a character from the sort of the first wave of the new Marvel age in the 60s. Um, makes his debut in Journey into Mystery. A lot of the Marvel heroes made their debuts in anthology comics or comics where they weren't the headline, they were tried out because it was still this whole thing. Well, it was a two-part thing of um, Marvel hadn't sort of sold superhero comics before whereas DC uh, or hadn't told the phrases whereas DC had uh, so Marvel were better known for monster comics than they were for superhero comics and there was also this odd thing where Marvel didn't have control over their own distribution in the 60s Marvel comics were distributed by DC so when Marvel started to do superhero comics they kind of hid them a bit because they worried that DC would cotton onto what they were doing and stop distributing their stuff so if you look at the first issue of the Fantastic Four, it's a monster coming out of the ground and the Fantastic Four fighting him, but all dressed in street clothes. Because they were kind of hoping that rather than realise it was a superhero comic, the DC is going, it's a monster comic and people fight. <laughs> They're not going to read the comics. Weird. They're not going to check it. It's going to go, that seems fine. And things like uh, Spider-Man appears in Amazing Fantasy and uh, uh, Thor appears in Journey's Mystery. So all these sort of anthology comics where it's not obvious. And then they become hits and they're like, here's a Spider-Man comic, here's a Thor comic. Once it's all... Uh, established and fine but yeah so Thor um, is basically the the reincarnation or the reappearance of the, the Norse god of myth the Norse god of thunder who reappears in uh, modern America he is well he's sort of brought back by I think in the original origin uh, Donald Blake who is a doctor is mountaineering in Scandinavia and he finds He's trapped under like a landslide and he finds this odd staff and he hits the ground. It turns him into uh, Thor and his staff is transformed into Molyneux, the magical hammer. Over the years, they've sort of moved away from Thor having a secret identity. He's just Thor all the time now. He was Eric Masterson for a while. 
um, in the 80s. Kamek, I like it. It's Scandinavian yeah, yeah. first name. <laughs> it was with a C, unfortunately. But, yeah, you know, he's well, got to be sort of on the cover, isn't he? <laughs> but it's, yeah, so essentially you have Thor, who is the Norse god of thunder. He has his magical hammer that can only be lifted by the one who is worthy, and that makes them uh, Thor, the god of thunder. And they can draw on lightning and thunder, and he gives them the power of flight. He has enhanced strength as uh, a god. Of course, in the films, and this is something I was talking about earlier, the sort of distinctions between the two things. In the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Asgardians aren't gods. They are from another realm or dimension, and they're essentially aliens. Um, and I think there's this sort of there was a thing in the comics for a while where the idea that Asgardians were aliens who had taken on the form of Norse myth, myth to sort of make themselves uh, acceptable on Earth or something. Hmm. Um, but apparently, the reason in the films that they're aliens rather than gods is to not motivate the religious rights into really? yeah into because this is America and this is what happens. And if you say that this guy is playing a god, they're like, well, what about our god? I don't see Jesus isn't in the Avengers. This is outrageous. And suddenly Fox News is getting your film. Same haircut though, isn't it? <laughs> and Jesus has those powers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Jesus was the first superhero, they'd say. But, but apparently that was the fear, that it would cause uh, protests and, and problems. So they were like, no, they're, they're just aliens. Yeah. And, and it's interesting, particularly in uh, the second film, seeing the sort of battle sequences, um, it looks more Star Wars than it does Thor. You mm. have sort of lasers and spaceships and you know, uh, cannons that you, know, you wouldn't normally see. But the whole nine realms thing—I mean, that that all ties into the whole universe, like Thanos and the Guardians, oh, yeah, all of this yeah. stuff. Like, it does work really oh, well together. No, uh, and as I say, it is a thing. This is one of the things where, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, uh, I think it fits perfectly and works uh, a treat, and does it does a great job of tying together the sort of uh, mythological aspects of the Marvel Universe with the cosmic aspects mm. of the Marvel Universe, which is integral for the larger plan where. Um, the Infinity Stones, stones accomplished. Yeah. Infinity Gems I want to call them Infinity Gems they're gems in the comics why change it to Stones for the films these are the changes I don't like <laughs> call them gems but yeah you've got this thing where Thanos and space and Odin and Asgard are tied together much more closely than they ever would be in the comics mm-hmm. and I think it, it sort of works a treat I mean it's a, a massive sprawling universe anyway so you need these things that, that link them together so the f- first film is more spacey yeah yeah, the first film's a bit more... In the same way as... Loki's the bad in the first one. Yeah, yeah. Well, the first Captain America film is very much a Captain America film. It's in the 40s. And it's about this guy and who Captain America is and what he's about. And then the second Captain America film is like very contemporary and about different concerns and the man at time. And the, I think with the four film, it's uh, a similar thing where the first one is about establishing what Asgard is and the mechanics as well. And the second one is more involved with... Uh, you know how he's going to interact with Earth, what his relationship's going to be. He spends half the films arguing with Odin about whether he should be going to Earth at all. Because the second film is after Avengers, so we've already seen the team come together. We've seen kind of where it all fits together. So it it needs to pay service to you know to that story to some extent. So Thor is played by Chris Hemsworth. He's great, really good. Yeah, yeah, he is good. I mean, that's the thing across all these Marvel films. I can't think of any sort of. 
major missteps in no. casting. Well, Thor was always my favourite in the comics. Right. And, yeah, I think Chris Hemsworth is doing a brilliant job with it. He's just, in particularly in Thor 2, he's just, it's genuinely funny. Just so many good moments throughout yeah. the film. Yeah, fantastic. It's directed by Alan Taylor, who directed, you know, Sopranos, Mad Men, Six Feet Under, Ball, Ball Camp. Game, Game of Thrones, most significantly. Like, you can well, see like, that they're just going sort of, for the Game of yeah, Thrones. Yeah, 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 right, right. Yeah, and he does a tremendous job, doesn't he, in terms yeah. of directing the action and stuff. Yeah, well, and just in terms of Asgard, you know, how it looked in the first film compared to how it looks in the second film, yeah. they made a really yeah. concerted effort to make it feel like a fully fleshed out place. Yeah. In the first film, it's, it's very much this shiny golden palace thing, and, you know, in the second film, you get to see them drinking in the bar, you get to see them sparring in the courtyard, you get to see, you know, much more of that world, and it just feels much more believable. Yeah, so the first film feels more mythological, and the second one feels more space opera, mm. which, as I say, does a great job of, of bringing it closer to what it, it needs to be for the Marvel Universe. But, you know, the kind of... When, when he is on Earth in the uh, second film, there's just so many nice touches in the action. Like, we'll get to the Greenwich sequence uh, shortly, but there's bits where, like... There's a, one bit where a few cars get sucked into this black hole. Mm. It's just such a lovely touch, man. There's a bit where he, um, where Thor's falling down the um, gherkin, you know, the, <laughs> the skyscraper, and it's just such a great little moment. That's what I thought was missing a bit from the from the Avengers second Avengers film. Those kind of little moments mm. in the action because it can just be all be a bit much, you know. Just like here's a load of fun. That's the problem with having like eight guys. Yeah, as right. You, as your characters with this, you can sort of really sort of get to. And give him space to sort of yeah, but they also had you know the, the comic relief that Darcy and the the intern whatever yes. that, that guy's name Ian, was Ian, Ian yeah, so oh, they're just they're doing their thing as well, <laughs> um, and you know they get their moments and that's funny and you know it is it's not just there for the sake of it they are supposed to be controlling this doohickey but you know that that's really really funny and they get their moments mixing you know you need that balance through the action to really have the light moments and otherwise it's just you're being bludgeoned by constant action <laughs> and CGI. I mean, my only uh, criticism of it in terms of the structure of it, I didn't like the fact that you didn't get enough of... Um, you've got Sif, who has moments, but the Warriors 3, who is sort of like Asgardian sidekicks, like in the first five minutes, Hogan's left at home. Mm. He's like, you stay here. And I'm like, nah, have Hogan <laughs> with you. There's going to be a huge battle. with like, And like, I don't understand, like, um, you know, get a Volstagg moment where he gets swarmed and yeah. Andrew gets a moment where he's on the ship and he's like... But it's like, have them all together. And I know it's Thor's film and you want to give him the space, but this is part of the larger world that he's from. So I think having them together, he's de- definitely giving more screen time, but have them all together, isn't it? Mm. What did you work on on Thor? Um, so <laughs> Dean Egg were the main vendors on this one. So on, uh, on Age of Ultron, we were just doing one particular sequence. On this, we were doing huge amounts. We had uh, everything on Asgard, we did, you know, masses of, of stuff, just creating that environment, um, everything from, you know, they shot a lot of stuff up in Norway and we had to just dress the Asgardian environment into that. Yeah, you were like, I was reading about it, you were like laying the buildings over existing landscapes. Yeah, yeah. It looks tremendous. They scouted it out on, you know, Google Maps and yeah, then they yeah. said, okay, this looks good, we could fit, you know, a city here and then some little, you know, buildings here and there and then they go out, they shoot it, we stick the stuff in. Yeah, and I mean, that was that was great stuff. Um, with you know huge action set pieces to go with it, so spaceships flying around, um, shooting laser beams, waterfalls, uh, the Rainbow Bridge, all that stuff, the Heimdall maneuver where um, 
Idris Elba's jumping up and you know with the daggers onto the invisible ship. That was all of that stuff. Huge big set pieces. Uh, really good fun 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 CGI stuff. Um, and then the other stuff on Earth, we were doing all of this stuff around Greenwich. Um, so you know, recreating Greenwich and sticking those spaceships in there and smashing stuff up. <laughs> yeah, we were saying earlier that essentially you can do anything now with CGI. And what they chose to do is uh, destroy a UNESCO World Heritage Site. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about raising the stakes, you know. Oh my God, they're going to destroy the Royal Naval College. <laughs> it's thrilling, isn't it, to, to have it in South London. Yeah. But it is also an exceptionally good action sequence, isn't it? Oh, it's tremendous, yeah. I mean, what's great about it, you know, just going back to what I was saying earlier about the form that these battles can take, for me, Thor 2 is like just... It's so brilliantly done in terms of establishing... You establish a threat early on with Malekith, and then you hear the whole thing where he creates curse, his like, henchman. Mm. So suddenly you've got a boss, you've got a henchman, and they do that so well with the whole thing of, you know, the, the, the heroes are motivated by something the henchman does to need to destroy him before they get to him. And you've got the swarm thing again with uh, the oh, Dark Elves. Guess, yeah. Just sort of like, you know, there's nothing running around that you can do is great. Which is why, as I say, I think there would have been space to have... Sith and the Warriors free alongside mm. Thor in the battle without taking anything away from it. Letting him do the central stuff, and even if he needs to sort of like go, you know, away from the rest of them to, to sort of finish him off. But I think there would have been space to sort of have them all. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Otherwise, so, you've just got the portals to play with. And well, but the portals as I well. Was such a good like, Yeah, it's so smart, isn't it? Yeah. And just beautifully done. Just so. Mm. Sort that, of, the hammer is such a great prop, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It, you know, moves and the way it sounds but as well. But it became its own character as well. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I love, um, there's one bit as well where, I think it might be uh, right at the end, where basically he leaps into the air empty-handed and like mid-flight, mm. mid, well, mid-leap, uh, the hammer sort of joins him and gives him the extra. And it, it's really smart, you know, one of the things that I love about uh, superheroes as a genre is about power sets and abilities and, and things that you have and and, and so particularly with characters like the Marvel characters who've been going around for years you know finding um, fresh new things to do with it and that's one of the things I love about the films in the comics you know we've seen Thor's hammer and Captain America's shield being used so many different ways but there's a genuine thrill to seeing it on screen and seeing the, the actual the physics of it moving around mm. Uh, in a way that you know it, it, it doesn't it wasn't working the same way in the comics at all, and it's a real sort of visceral thing, and even not even necessarily massive things. There's um, the bit in uh, Captain America two when he's in the lift mm. and he just flips the shield out of his foot. Yeah, and it's such a great moment, and it would be very hard to convey that with the same sort of elan mm. in comics as they do in the film. It's just so sort of smoothly done, and it's such a great character moment as well. Mm. And 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 again. That's another thing about having the hammer there. It's sort of how he chooses to use it. So much of this stuff now is planned over the course of many, many months. So, you know, they've got a previous company on, on most of these things where they'll basically do an animated version of the film before anything is shot. So they'll have a lot of these things worked out. You know, they'll, they'll obviously, they'll start old school. They'll start with storyboards. They'll try and draw out the whole thing. But before, you know, that really does only get you so long. Like, for example, if you're storyboarding that lift sequence, it's yeah, not, you know, you know, yeah, you know yeah. you're not going to get those moments just from the drawings. So when you move it into previous, then you can get these anime, you know, you can figure it all out and you can see how it's going to work. So, and, and it's such a good tool for kind of figuring out, you know, for getting the most out of their money. They don't want to be, you know, shooting these massive action sequences and have tons of it left on the cutting room floor. So they really want to make sure that whatever they're shooting, there's a good chance it's going to end up in the movie. I did think, 
if I had any criticism about the look of the film, the sort of dark elves that really like Doctor Who villains. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that sort of mask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, Cybermen. Yeah, yeah, that sort of... But even, even if there was an episode of Doctor Who and they were like, the dark elves are here, and they, those guys turned up, you wouldn't sort of go, these look... No, they look... And, and, but, and that sort of, I don't know... Uh, you know, because Christopher Rexon plays Malekith. Yeah. Maybe that was... Uh... Well, maybe that's it. They're setting it in London, so why not have yeah. some Doctor Who... They would have probably filmed in. in Cardiff, though, wouldn't they? I <laughs> <laughs> One thing that uh, didn't sit right with me is... So this uh, spaceship, I don't know what you call it, you know, that big vertical thing, crashes yeah, into your Yeah, that. <laughs> <laughs> like, so Thor turns up, and like he just lands in Greenwich. And he, he just lands on the pavement and just smashes the pavement yeah, up. I didn't notice that, yeah. <laughs> like, like, this is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Now you're landing. Now you're landing. You know what you're doing. So, but there was another uh, South London location as well. The Oxo Tower restaurant. Mm. Steve, did you notice that? I didn't notice that, no. Yeah, the Chris O'Dowd, Natalie Portman right, meal. Right. So they get to Greenwich because uh, Stellan... Scar's got jaws out there, the lines on the map, Steve. How convinced were you by that? I was The thing is, as he's saying it, he's, he's like going, you have to remember, if you look at history, you can learn that you know, the Chinese and the Egyptians, and he goes, Stonehenge. <laughs> <laughs> and he just like, he draws like, he's got a map of the UK, and draws like three lines of the UK, and goes, Greenwich. And it, it, the thing was, <laughs> but the thing was, I was like, surely, I don't know, it's like the Prime Meridian copyright or something? Because surely, <laughs> do you know me just like as a storyteller, yeah, and you go, Where's the convergence going to happen? Probably at the Prime Meridian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then you sort of go, right, then let's go to, where's the Prime Meridian? Greenwich. Don't have him draw things. I mean, use the phrase Prime Meridian because yeah. it sounds exactly like it works with convergence. I don't want to tell these people how to write their films. <laughs> They're going to get that wrong then. <laughs> so I'm going to give this three popcorns as well, right? Were you, okay, were you bothered? Is this out of five? Were you bothered by the yeah. liberties they took with geography with the tube? That is an issue, isn't it? That You've is got thing. to mention that. Yeah. Three stops from Sharon Cross. Yeah. I mean, special service. <laughs> <laughs> My only issue is, and it's something that people do and you don't need to do it, like at the start of that final act where they're, they're getting everything set up and establishing the stakes, um, there's a bit where I think like Jane Foster says, um, the convergence is in seven, no, uh, Eric Selvig says, oh, the convergence is seven minutes. And Jane Foster's like, well, then we need to keep Malekith busy for eight. So you're like, okay, so we've given ourselves an eight-minute window here for all this stuff to happen before the convergence happened. That's fine. Uh, and there's various fine, which probably takes about eight minutes, but that's fine. But then you can't relocate him and put him on a train to come yeah. up, because that's eight minutes, minimum, <laughs> even if it is a special service. Because that was the thing as well. It was, it, it's the unspoken thing of like, what happens at the barriers? Yeah. I, mean? I, just, my, I just think... Why not just do it to the right station? You know what I mean? Like, He's in Charing Cross. Go up, get the overground. He's going to get yeah. there. Well, like, just change Charing Cross to three stops away from Greenwich. Do you know what I mean? Insisting on getting on the tube. Like, like what's the um, Harrison Ford film showing on there? Is it Patriot Games? Yes, and there's just yeah. it's like he runs he's running through like Berlin and Arcade. Then he's yeah. on there. I mean, it has happened so many times, but I'm just like, you it know, does maybe you just if you're going to insist area, on getting yeah. landmarks, maybe just do the right ones in the right order. <laughs> How many popcorns would you give this? I'll give it four popcorns with caramel. <laughs> Steve? Um, I'd probably go three popcorns again. Maybe three you and can't a half. You give half a popcorn, you give a kernel. <laughs> I just didn't get a lot. When you were saying earlier about the intern stuff being funny, I didn't really get much out of that. 
Like, I kind of... That's something as well. I've said that. This is another one I really enjoyed. But for me, you know, there's like your five popcorn films, your four popcorn... This is a three popcorn film. But uh, I've really enjoyed it. I'm happy to watch it again. If it comes on the TV, you're not going to turn it off. No. I'm not going to turn it on. (laughs) (laughs) First of all, Steve, plug your podcast process. I run a monthly group at Gosh Comics called Process, which is a workshop and discussion group for people to meet other creators and discuss the making of comics. When's the next one and who will be there? The next one will be on the 6th of May. Uh, it's a small press symposium. So it's going to be a panel of myself, Andy Oliver from Broken Frontier, Danny Noble, a comics creator. Uh, Dave White from Avery Hill Dave Publishing. Dave White from Avery Hill Publishing and Shibby from Black, uh, Backwards Bird. All talking about working various parts of the small press scene. So obviously buying the stuff for a shop, uh, Dave publishes it, Andy reviews it, Danny and Shibby make it, Shibby makes it as part of a collective, Danny makes it on her own, she's been away from us, she's come back to comics. So it's the idea is to assemble a panel that can talk about their experience with small press, share that with the, the crowd that's there, take any questions, just have a discussion about you know things that you've learned from doing small press, or being involved with small press and passing that information on. And you have a podcast called Process, Steve. That's right. Um, can people I, get that from holdfastnetwork.com slash process? They can. There's 12 episodes up already. I'll hopefully be recording, you know, I can't think why not, but you know, I might be dead. Uh, small Press Symposium <laughs> on the, I mean, if I do die, someone else hosts it, because it's too important not to happen. <laughs> I'll take over. <laughs> um, yes, there's 12 episodes so far of me talking to various comics creators and people involved in comics related projects so there's a director of somebody's uh, Pat uh, Mills isn't it Pat Selling Mills the biggest one the godfather of uh, British comics and Capers Steve what's that Capers is a monthly superhero group that I host at Gosh Comics normally on the third Wednesday of every month but because I'm in Ireland for a little while this month it's going to be on the last Wednesday of the month 27th and of it's a chance 27th of May and who will you be talking about on this one? We'll be talking about the Teen Titans, who are DC's premier sidekick superhero team, and the various iterations of them over the years. The new Titans, the new Teen Titans, Teen right. Titans Go. So get down to uh, 1 Berwick Street, Gosh Comics, and do they start at 7 o'clock? 7 o'clock. Great. So you, you go there. to our uh, Facebook page or our Twitter account, all the information is there as well. GoshLondon.com. A reminder that you could use the Amazon link on southlondonhardcore.com to either sign up for an Amazon Prime free trial or to do your regular Amazon shopping and we'll get a kickback and we can help fund the podcast. We have t-shirts available from southlondonhardcore.spreadshirt.co.uk. We're on Instagram and Twitter at SLHC. You can find us on iTunes if you search for South London Hardcore. Why are you destroying our planet? I have no choice. Sue! Wait! Fire one over the top. Roger out. So we're going back to 2007. Those crazy days. Heady days. <laughs> so this is pre-Marvel Cinematic Universe. Kind of. No, it is. When was the first Iron Man? 2008, uh-huh. I believe. But the Hulk film with Edward um, is... Zing. No, that's after this. Oh, is it? Yeah. So, Marvel now, as you say, Steve, 
Blade, yeah. The Blade, talk about the Blade TV show. Um, they All their stuff exists in one cinem- cinematic universe. On top of that, they also became their own film studio, Marvel Studios, around this point. Um, so this is very much a different era of superhero films, isn't it? Oh, yeah. You know, with, um, what was the first one that really hit? Not uh, Well, not I say first one. In that kind of about 2000... X-Men. It's got to be X-Men. X-Men, yeah. right. Yeah, because yeah, there's a line in Jane Silent Bob Strike Back. He says, after, when X-Men hit at the box office, every, all the studios wanted to get their grubby little hands on yeah. uh, some superhero property. Miramax got Jane uh, got Blunt Man and Chronic. So that, you know, that kind of wave kind of ends, not necessarily with this film, but around this time, isn't it? Fantastic Four, part two, mm. Rise of the Silver Surfer. It does have a Stan Lee cameo. It does. I reckon the worst one. <laughs> I'm, I'm Stan Lee. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably the only one where he says that, surely. <laughs> I think Thor maybe has the best Stan Lee cameo. Thor 2, sorry. Where uh, Stellan Skarsgård is demonstrating oh, yeah. um, the, uh, how, yeah, how, I know, how time or planets or something works. Give me back with his two shoes, yeah. And it turns out he's in like a, he's in like a mental hospital and, and uh, Stan is like, can I have my shoe back? See, I, I would say... Captain America 2 uh, Winter Soldier uh, don't spoil it for me because I might watch it ok well, uh, no, don't spoil the Stan Lee cameo <laughs> also um, I think it's the first Fantastic Four film where Stan Lee plays uh, the postman who and again it's one of those scenes that only works as a nod if you've read enough of the comics because like in the Fantastic Four they've got a postman called Willie Lumpkin mm. who uh, is that Scalibur at the end Excelsior. Ah! <laughs> but yeah, so Stanley uh, makes a cameo appearance as William Lumpkin, which uh, sort of pleased me as sort of like bringing the worlds together. Also, it's at the wedding, isn't it? That he's yeah, he's trying to get into the wedding. See, and again, that pleases me a lot because um, I think it's annual one of Fantastic Four, but. Reed and Sue's wedding in the comics. And this is one of the things that makes me sad about the sort of fragmenting of these various properties. Basically, um, Fantasy Four Only One, where Reed and Sue get married, is arguably the first major Marvel crossover because they get married and then sort of invite everyone along. Mm. And Doctor Doom, at a distance, creates this like machine that motivates every villain in the Marvel Universe to try and ruin this wedding. So you've got this thing where they're getting ready to get married, like in this film. Um, but like the X Men are there, and all the Avengers, like everyone's there, and then all, all, every villain ever starts. Turning up. It's just this like at the time it would have been unprecedented to have this many characters in one comic. And there is a bit right at the end where in the comic Stanley and Jack Kirby turn up as guests at the wedding <laughs> and get turned away at the door. Really? Also. Yeah. Oh, when so I say it's that's the worst. I mean, best. Yeah, <laughs> it's, a, it's a good nod to sort of yeah. So uh, although it is a bit clunky, I think it might be a nod to the actual comic. As is well. Jack Kirby dead or is he the recluse? He's, he's, oh, he's dead. dead. Right, right. Ditko's the recluse. So we don't need to give a background on the Fantastic Four, Steve. I feel like we've done that. Um, so the, the in two thousand and five, they made a Fantastic Four film, and. I don't remember it being super successful, but it must have been. It was successful enough to get to a, make sequel. a sequel. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. But I mean, they're they're doing a new Fantastic Four now. And yeah, they've already tr- announced the sequel. Really? Yeah, well, as is as is the way now, isn't it? I suppose. Yeah, uh, I think we can probably we saw the se- uh, the trailer, didn't we? At, yeah, um, at the yeah. Avengers, and I think we could safely say they're going to do it to a certain standard. Mm. You know, I'm not sure who's making it, but 
who the director is. But you know, Josh Trank. It ain't Tim Story. I can tell you that much. <laughs> no, so Tim Story. It's you know he'd made he'd made Barbershop, which I've not seen, and a load of hot trash, basically. <laughs> and um, it's no secret to say that Fantastic Four: Rise of the Silver is not good. No. Rise, of the, Rise of the Silver Surfer. Sorry. No. It's it seems now it seems quaint. That's the mm. best you can say about it. Yeah, there's a couple of bits in it, like the sort of wedding sequence. There's enough sort of, let's say, nods to the comics, but there's just so many problems with it as a film. It has quite a light approach. You know, a lot of these things fall down when they yeah. take themselves too seriously. Yeah, it's quite, you know, meta, isn't it? Even down to that Stanley saying I'm Stanley. Um, but that was the thing for me. It was like, there were bits where it's like too light. Like, I don't need... Uh, Reed Richards in a nightclub. That's yeah. not fun. No. Oh, the opening, and then the opening scene, the gag where he just he's doing on the yeah. airplane trying yeah. to get his bag in with the stuff, and it's just yeah. that's just cheap laugh. That's just yeah. Bad. There's a bit where um, he, he's drunk on. Is it the, okay? It's not the morning. It must be the day before his wedding, or is it the morning? Whatever. But um, Michael Chiklis's character, the, the thing, is sort of carrying him along, and it, where he's drunk, his legs are just trailing behind, <laughs> yeah, and they just keep yeah. going and going. And it's like something from like Saturday Night Live. Yeah. <laughs> like you can't quite believe that that's in like a mega budget blockbuster. Yeah. Like the C, this, generally the CGI is not good. I mean, it's, it's very difficult. It's to look hard like. to judge. It doesn't seem to be time. good even for the era. Well, it's it's a mix because you've got you've got Weta bringing their A game at the time for the Silver Surfer himself, and right, then you've got yeah, a yeah. whole host of other houses. You know, similar to Avengers, there's about twenty different companies worked on this. So it's very easy to point fingers and say, well, this bit didn't work. It was probably, you know, a room of four guys just, oh man, we're on fast and <laughs> And some of the other trying to animate some stretchy... The stretchy stuff, stuff is the problem, isn't it? But, yeah, but they should have, I mean, they, they should have stayed away from it. It's just too cheesy. If you're going to do that, do it once. Yeah. Don't keep going back Yeah, there. yeah, exactly, yeah. That's the thing, like, what I like about the fact I'm all for a light approach to superhero films I love you know humour and, and as I say using powers in a sort of like smart way but the whole key to Fantastic Four is firstly they're sort of science adventurers that's what I want to have them I want a science adventure and they're a family it's a very specific thing but do you know what I mean it's, yeah, a, yeah. it's a thing where I, it doesn't have to you know we were talking earlier about the different kinds of superhero battles you can have and I don't want them to have a conventional superhero battle mm-hmm. I don't want them to be fighting a swarm people it's not where they do their best stuff I want them to be looking at odd things I think that is the tone I'm looking for in a Fantastic Four story and film and the problem I have with everyone they've made so far is they keep just sort of like getting it wrong in terms of the whole mechanism of the story was there a precedent for the whole power swapping thing yeah but that, that's the thing the power swapping thing I'm a big fan of mm-hmm. because that is it's not a huge precedent in the Fantastic Four itself but within uh, superhero comics generally I think it's a great sort of uh, thing to investigate and that's where you can get sort of a, a lighter bit the fact that they sort of bring, bring it into the battle you know there's a key point where um, Johnny Storm just like flies in knowing that this is a problem flies into Reed and like switches their powers at a key moment that almost scuffles everything and you're like he's not he's young he's not an idiot he yeah. just sort of like completely and as I say having Reed just sort of like goofing about for the first 15 minutes undercuts him as you know one of the most intelligent people in mm. the Marvel Universe having Johnny do that undercuts him as being 
you're like, oh, he's an idiot. Why am I listening mm. to it? And with all of them, they just like, as soon as anything, they just seem to panic. Yeah. And the thing, he gets switched back to a human. You would think this is like, oh my God, this is, you know, do this for me again. I want to stay like this. He just, he switched back. Oh, yeah. Mind. Yeah. Which is like, as I say, a complete misreading of what the character is in the comics where he's uh, obsessed with trying to become uh, human again. Mm. And that should be the angler. As you say, playing that for laughs seems, yeah. In poor I mean, taste. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a poor man. They fo- they end up in South London similar for similarly du- dubious reasons as Thor. Really. <laughs> well, this There's... is the danger about if if your area is getting a cameo appearance in a superhero film, the chances are it's getting smashed up in it. That's what yeah. it's there for. Do you know what I mean? It yeah. is. It is. And County Hall takes a bit of a hit, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. But just like there's something to do. It's a while since I watched it, but something to do with longitude and latitude is a computer program. Yeah, some formula yeah. like boom, let's there go. it is. Yeah, and a hole uh, appears in the Thames, doesn't it? I did wonder whether it was like a commercial deal they'd struck with the people behind London Eye, like because at that time, you know, just sort of. So that's pretty far in, isn't it? I mean, that's yeah, I suppose, eight yeah. years after its uh, but it could have been. I mean, the, you know, that changes hands every few it years. It does, so yeah, it true, could have true. been. But I mean, it was only second unit. It wasn't like they set up here and filmed a big, like the other films we've talked about. They filmed huge chunks of it in mm. studios locally, so you had you know most of the the crew would be there. This was just fly a little second unit thing. But the, for a when of you days. say second unit, but Tim Story would have presumably gone with them. Oh, you don't know maybe, guess, do you? maybe not. Really, maybe not. Maybe right, not. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, that's, it's really. Tim Story's got the footage back going. Why? Why is Johnny flying into him? He knows where. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, essentially, the London is it the, the hole in the ground that makes the London Eye fall over? Yeah, I think there's sort of instability from the sinkhole. Yeah, sort right. Of like, so between them, they sort of hold it up, but it's really heavy, and they sort of struggle for a bit. Well, it's this again. It's this whole uh, another common thing in um, superhero films and comics. It's heavy enough. It's heavy enough that it's a struggle. <laughs> yeah. But uh, the minute they sort of go, Ben, can you just lift this above your head into the exact spot so we can weld it into place? No problem. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just not being like, he's just uh, like, as soon as there with her foot and her hands are struggling. Like, you made a point, struggling. Steve, of some quite bad, um, quite Force. unconvincing acting there. Yeah. And I mean, we're not blaming Jessica Alba for that. There's a number of people that could sort of be to blame there. But it's really bad. Isn't yeah, it? it's basically her sort of standing there with her hands trembling a bit and trying to look like she's really concentrating but it doesn't look like she's sort of using powers at all it looks like she's just sort of standing there and it's tough because obviously her powers are invisible force shields yeah. so there's only so much even once the SFX goes in that yeah. it sort of elevates that yeah. and, and sort of puts some blue effects around Exactly we've got to the point now where it's a bit easier to kind of remove things so we could have put something in that she's struggling against and then get rid of it but back then, it was like, oh, just act like. <laughs> oh, right, so there could be a thing about well, actually yeah, having I mean, time for us to resist. Yeah, which would have made it easier, wouldn't it, I guess? So, yeah. yeah. There's so many a ways. Massive could... green, yeah, yeah, very yeah. light London Eye. Yeah. <laughs> What's funny about that sequence as well, right? So it ends with like the Thames has been drained, there's a big hole in the bottom. Um, but is it Westminster Bridge or Waterloo Bridge? I can't remember. But it's just cars going over. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, normal. Yeah. It's like nobody <laughs> knows. Westminster, yeah. But you can see a Thames clipper. So, you know, yeah, just sitting there. Little, yeah, yeah. little bit of detail. There's got to be some people in there. Going, ah, help us, <laughs> Superman. But you just can't get away with like having Kerry Washington kissing a man made of rock. <laughs> just that's very difficult to pull off. Couple of issues with the villains in the film. They do a thing where Doctor Doom is exposed to the power cosmic and is healed, 
never heal Doom. That's ridiculous. Have him walking around like a normal person. That just kills the character completely. Just well, what's wrong with Doom? He's got a scarred face that motivates his entire uh, every action he takes. Ah, oh, right, right, right. <laughs> so once you heal him, you're sort of like, well, he, why is he doing this now? <laughs> yeah. Well, what's his problem? Still jealous of Reed Richards, but you're fine. Um, also, and this is yeah, a bit awkward because we've got a bit of a cloud expert in the film. <laughs> the but they did this in Green Lantern as well and they did it in Fantastic Four Rise of the Observer. Make the baddie a cloud. Yeah. So like, as I say, have a swarm, have a henchman, have a baddie, but have them be people you can chin because yeah. that's big. Whereas at the end of this, and Green Lantern, they sort of like, yeah, they just sort of fly into a cloud and go, well, that's diffused now. It's yeah. no longer a danger. And you're like, it's the weather channel? What's this? Huh. It's just not acceptable as a, as a villain. And you know, What about in Ghostbusters? Isn't there like a kind of... Stay puff marshmallow, man. Okay. Physical form. Yeah, right, right, right. But there are bits where they kind of hoover up baddies, isn't there? Yeah, but they, they're Case established... God is a gas. But they build it up as, you know, Galacticus is coming, here comes the destroyer, yeah. and you just get this big cloud. Yeah. I mean, and I like, like, even as a cloud lover... I, I do love a good cloud. <laughs> but back to the, the, the cloud technology of 2007, you know, not incredible. But you see, my thing is, even if it's the best looking cloud ever, <laughs> have, him in, have him standing in giant purple armor. And this is the problem. They don't want to have... This is a problem with a lot of superhero adaptations. They're like, well, that's a bit silly. And you're like, all loads of this is silly. <laughs> you can't have that as, as being your line. Have, have a giant cosmic purple armoured... God turn up to eat the earth, please. Yeah. And then have him defeat that rather than... Uh, just the cloud. Yeah, just the clouds. Yeah, I wonder, because the, uh, the visual effects supervisor on the film was Scott Squires, who invented the cloud tank effect back in Close Encounters. So maybe they just went, get the cloud guy. We're going to have a cloud baddie. Yeah. And this, as I say, so that is probably the best cloud you're going to get in 2007. But it's not good enough, is it? That's all we were doing in those days, wasn't it? <laughs> Isn't it? I did a couple of years of clouds. Yeah, yeah. I, love I mean, clouds. similarly, you Gavin end up clouds <laughs> <laughs> You end up with um, Doom on the board, didn't you? Mm. And that's also a bit. That's something that could work in the comics, but I don't know if it works as a live action uh, thing to do. But yeah, a lot of lot of problems. Yeah, I think I might even go to far as to say one popcorn, and I don't say that very often. Okay. I mean, I've literally yeah. never said one popcorn in my life. So. <laughs> I didn't even watch this film until this podcast oh, really? because it was that much of a, yeah, yeah do I need yeah. to see this? And I didn't. No, you didn't. <laughs> My apologies. <laughs> Are you thinking one popcorn? Uh, yes, one crusty. <laughs> when it's time for adventure. It's time for Superman. Alexander Salkine presents Christopher Reeve and Richard Pryor in Superman 3. So we're going quite far back now, aren't we? To 1983 for Superman 3. Am I the only person that was alive when this film came out? Uh, if it <laughs> I came... think I saw this in the cinema. <laughs> I have Correct. not seen it since then. Correct answer. <laughs> Yeah, when you mention it, I couldn't remember. Superman 3, is that the one with the junkyard or is that the one with Richard Pryor and the computer? Turns out it's both. <laughs> it's <laughs> amazing. The best of all the worlds. Yeah. The junkyard being the reason we're here, you know. No. Oh, oh is it? The coal mine being the reason we're here. What's the difference? <laughs> it's different scenes. <laughs> <laughs> the coal mine is where he drops off Gus at the end. 
Oh, right, right, right. It's a tiny scene. Tiny scene. Well, huge parts of it were shot in Pinewood. Right. Pinewood is outside the M25, so it yeah. might not qualify. Yeah, it doesn't qualify, oh. actually, but... If we did, we'd be talking about films every week. <laughs> 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 the first superhero movie franchise? Yes, yeah, I would say so. can't think of anything... I mean, and... and Sequels. Even then, I mean, Batman follows in from 89 onwards, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. But even then, there's just sort of... Yeah, bits I mean, and pieces, like, but nothing like we have a, Yeah, exactly. It's just such a, such a different... Uh, but as you say, it's just, you know, what's happened in the last decade is uh, the world of special effects has caught up with comics. Mm. You know, we can do things in or on film now that can look like or look better than it does in the comics. Whereas for so long it was these incredible things, powers that were being displayed... And if they tried to do it on screen, it'd be like, this isn't going to... Yeah, and also I think you've got a situation where they're playing it a lot safer with uh, big budget films now than at any point in the past. I think I'm right in saying... Um, for yeah, it's easier to reason. tap into an existing franchise and yeah. property. I, I mean, I, I tended to um, kind of do some research, pull up some numbers, but I didn't. Um, <laughs> like, kind of... <laughs> no, but sort of percentage of films... Of the highest sort of budget films that are sequels and well, just sequels. Yeah, there's a, a huge debate in the film industry. And it's, it's, about... it's got to be more than ever, isn't it? Well, this is the people are, are, are genuinely worried by the slate I that am. DC and Marvel have put together of like this. This is eating up all the money to make films. Yeah, essentially. Um, but it is what people want. Otherwise, someone could sneak in and you know create something brand new, and that would swallow the competition. It's not going to happen. Yeah. Edge of Tomorrow, I thought, was the best uh, blockbuster I've seen in years. Yeah, the best kind really. of action film for, you know, a decade, probably. And like that didn't do very well, did it? No, yeah. Tremendous. Anyway, Superman. Five popcorns. Five popcorns. Five popcorns. Five popcorns. <laughs> Five popcorns. <laughs> At least four and a half. <laughs> 1978, Superman. Yeah. Yep. 1980, Superman 2. 1983, Superman 3, right? <laughs> so the second one was also huge, was it? It was a massive hit. Yeah, yes. yeah. The third one wasn't so much of a hit. No, no, it didn't do well critically or, or commercially. No. Which sort of puts the kibosh on the whole franchise until Superman, Superman 4, four which, which we should not speak of. No. I've not seen it, but uh, what's the, the subtitle? The villain's called uh, The Quest for Peace. The villain's called Nuclear Man. <laughs> and the film is essentially about how nuclear stuff is dangerous. Man. Shot in Mil- Milton Keynes, largely. So. Yeah, uh, uh, Christopher Reeve was talking about how, you know, for the first one, they would do these epic things, they would go to New York, there would be a scene, you know, set on 42nd Street, they'd go there, the huge crowds, this one, there was just, you know, a car park, small crowd, okay, we're in New York now, what? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not, it's, a, it's so sort of radically different from, but then I think... The Superman three is is significantly different from one and two. It is, but I think with the fourth one, nine years have passed, yeah. and the effects are worse yeah. than the first <laughs> one. It's not many you franchises because <laughs> yeah. like the first one uh, in terms of special effects is it's huge, isn't it? It's like a massive, yeah. massive deal. Tagline: do. You will believe a man can fly. Did you? <laughs> <laughs> So first one is directed by Richard Donner. Yep. Second one is directed by Richard Donner, but then um, uh, Dick Lester takes over and does like I think like seventy percent of the final film. They end up reshooting stuff so they could change his credit. Um, but so the third one is a Dick Lester film. 
and it, the opening sequence is kind From of the start. Pure yeah. Start, isn't it? yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like this elaborate set of kind of coincidences, and like there's a blind man doing certain things. Yeah, it's a Mr. Magoo bit. Suddenly, there's like a, a car full of water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's tremendous, isn't it? Like this water's filling up this car's magic there's ground. There's a penguin that's on car. fire, flapping about. Yeah, you know, custard pie in a man's face. And that bit with the car is a great example of what I was talking about earlier with the the power settings being whatever we need them to be. So like there. Superman like goes over and like is there's a little bit of like yeah. resistance to get a It's like ah, I just need to get this thing off. Uh, and it's odd because like to sell the drama, you can't just go over and just nonchalantly uh, just sort of flip over. But or then, even go over heat vision. You know, yeah, there's so many. He, he flies across the road. So <laughs> yeah. You all believe a man can fly across a road? <laughs> yeah, and it's more of a hop, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's not quite the opening scene. The opening scene is Richard Pryor. Trying to get his DSS. Yeah. Like, it's such a bold choice, isn't it? <laughs> to make Richard well, Pryor the re- centre of... Rewatching this film, like, I, I hadn't seen it for years and have such, like, fond memories of it. And I was like, I really hope it holds up. I hope I still enjoy it. And that opening shot where it's like, next, and yeah. Richard Pryor looks up, it just took me back immediately. I remembered that look on Richard Pryor's face as he looks up. And it, it, as you say, it does. And a lot of people You wouldn't know you were watching a Superman film, no, would you? Absolutely not. And and this is what a lot of people got annoyed about with the film because they're like, oh, Richard Pryor's in it all over the place. Like, that's a problem now. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. But he's in a different film to Christopher Reeve. Yes. Christopher Reeve is giving it his best. He genuinely wants to make it work. Yeah, yeah. And it's not it's not that film. No, it is and it is two very, very different films. I didn't realise Christopher Reeve was so tall. Yeah. This is the only uh, one I've seen. Like I remember sort of as a kid maybe seeing Superman flying the wrong way around the world to make make it turn back and apparently that's the second one. First. And you know what? There's a bit where a Superman rips open or baddie Superman whatever he's called that rips open a um, oil tanker and it all yeah, spills yeah. out and he sort of blows it back mm. in which I thought was pretty terrible. Yeah. Um, and that I think I'd seen before. Right. So this was like kind of my introduction to the Superman films. And I also kind of uh, partly it is absolutely appalling but it, it, some of it I thought was like Superman good yeah it's brilliant <laughs> I think yeah I wouldn't say brilliant I'll say brilliant well I mean it's it's really you know it's in the culture now you know when Office yeah, Space yeah. does the yeah. gag yeah, you know, yeah. It's, it's been used many many times since the whole weather satellite thing yeah, yeah. this entire film is being made right now just based on that story yeah yeah, yeah there's just so many I mean it's the most dubious science I've ever seen in a film <laughs> yeah yeah but like but, Richard Pryor goes decides that like you say the office space gag where Richard Pryor um, is having a conversation like all these half pennies um, you know things are rounded down so all this money is just lost to the company oh well what if we could get over the older those half pennies you know put them in this different account that's quite an interesting idea. He literally gets on a computer and types in, yeah, yeah. move all the half pennies. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's literally what happens. He is the ultimate hacker. You can literally just type in plain English and it happens. Yeah. Yeah. And the first, when he's in computer class, he types his program and the guy goes, have you done this? And he shows him the code and the code literally says, print this line. Print <laughs> this line. There's no coding. It's amazing. And it, it, it is that great thing. Of, but then, you know, uh, in terms of like pacing, you know, you do get films where like there's a big expositional bit about oh this and that with this it's just sort of like I need a job and he just sees a matchbook and he goes oh I'll try this out and it turns out <laughs> really yeah, 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 it's just a yeah. great shortcut where it's like so I'm great at computer programming and I'm going to do this and it's just so efficient of I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do this and then before you know it 
He's in the office. Like, I really thought the whole scam ran for longer than that, from what I remembered of it. Be like, nope, the scam is just to get in the attention of the boss to do yeah, the yeah. the real... So uh, he can villainy. ski down the, down the uh, skyscraper. But that sequence as well, wasn't it? It's great. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Richard Pryor. So Richard Pryor doing a bit. Yeah, with his little pink... Yeah, and he's like trying on. to make the, the cape fly. No? You know what? I, put, I was dreading watching it. Right, I haven't right. watched Fantastic Four. I thought this is just going to be such a slog, and it was not a slog at no, all. Because no. it, because it is. I mean, it falls into the category of so good, so bad. It's good. I think. See, I don't. I think it is very deliberately light and comedic and silly, and that's what I really it like. Is, I it is. It's yeah, silly, yeah. and and what they do really well for me is there is a tradition with Superman comics in particular of. The, the Silver Age, which was the time from like the sort of like fifties up to the seventies, you know, after there was a book written called The Seduction of the Innocent by this guy called uh, Frederick Wellman, The Seduction of the Innocent, mm-hmm. and it was a book by this psychologist in America where he said that comics were corrupting American youth, and there were Senate hearings, and it basically turned into this massive sort of witch hunt. Um, where they were like, it's all latent homosexuality, it's horrible violence, it's this uh, glamorising crime. And it turns into this whole thing that threatened to completely tank uh, the comics industry. So in response, they come up with the Comics Code Authority and they basically just completely um, just rinsed out any sort of danger or threat mm. and turned them into like really silly things. So in, in the sort of... But even even in like Superman comics, rather than him fighting villains, a lot of it was just sort of like really weird uh, sequences where Superman turns into a gorilla, fat Superman, bald Superman, uh, the Superman with two brains, where he's got a massive sort of like <laughs> it's just all these and it, 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 it's like <laughs> su- Silver Age Superman stories <laughs> Steve are Martin synonymous with sort of bad, brains. not bad science, but like pseudo science and silliness. And in the first Superman film in '78, you get this whole thing where. Uh, to save the day, Superman flies so fast around the world that he makes time go backwards, so he gets another day to fix everything. Yeah, and you're like, I find that unacceptable, man. Exactly, that's what I mean. <laughs> and in uh, the second film, you have uh, what's the thing they do in the second film? But like, so in the third film, the the thing they do is have the sort of Superman split, mm. but all the sort of silliness, all the stuff. For me, it it felt like sort of like them just tapping into this whole history of Superman going yeah there's nothing wrong with being silly and what I loved about it was leaning in the Tower of Pisa when he straightens that up that's such a great no that is, is so it? bad that's, that's, that's going too far the no, Italian man no, who just says it, bruschetta over yeah. and over again and he has a t-shirt with Pisa written on it you know? but also no but I love uh, the, the, the gag there is the guy's response where he just drops the statue in it and then the second time just smash it. I love that it's <laughs> memorable I thought it was great um, but also just things like uh, Lorelai, who's like the villains, uh, one of the, one of the sort of villains henchwomen, mm. I guess you'd say. And like in any other film, uh, she would just be described. I mean, you described her the other day as like his secretary, and like she would just be his assistant. But no, her official designation is psychic nutritionist. Yeah. And I was like, that's great. It doesn't need to be there, and it uh, it works a treat. I loved it. and all the stuff where like um, they so they make some bad kryptonite that doesn't quite kill Superman, but makes him bad instead. I thought that was brilliant. That yeah, was it had like, tar in it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but like you've got, so you get the sequence where like, he, uh, and this is the thing. This is what I mean about the silliness. Like, what does bad Superman do? He straightens the Leaning Tower <laughs> just to wind people up. And there's a bit, uh, one of my favourite bits in the whole film when um, 
it's such a long sequence as well. They're following the Olympic flame about to be lit. It's <laughs> run across the flame has been yeah. carried across the world, and he runs up and it goes up the set and it takes ages. And just at the moment where he's about to light it, Superman just blows out the flame. And then they cut to him, just standing on the scaffold, just looking like a douche. <laughs> and it's great. It's just sort of like, yeah, this is what Superman do. He's not going to be an evil dictator. He's just a bit of a pest. Well, he was also super lech. Yes. It's just yeah. a bit creepy. Yeah. But it's good, sort of creepy. Yeah. In that mm-hmm. it's sort of like, this is just really weird. And it doesn't work at all, because Christopher Reeve... What did you think well. about the bit where... Clark Kent threw tyres over Superman to uh, <laughs> thwart him. Who just stood there. Yeah, he <laughs> just stood there. Waiting for the next one yeah. to arrive. Uh, I really enjoyed it. And it is easy to, to sneer at the computer stuff, but there's similar stuff in, in Avengers, you know? Yeah. Like, from, from now looking back 30 years, at the time people were like, yeah, computer stuff, don't understand it. Yeah, maybe you can do all this stuff. Same thing with Avengers well, too. It's in the internet. Exactly. Yeah. Really? I, I would say, I would say, mm. Gus is coding... No, and no, no, the no. conversation between James Spader and Paul Bettany in a computer are as bad as one another. Yeah. No, I don't. That's I don't. So I don't ever see anything as bad. He literally just types it out. I mean, there's one bit where yeah, Robert Vaughn is playing an eight-bit computer game, a shooter, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. and then you see that he's shooting cannons at Superman. I yeah, mean, that's in the and and when that woman goes walks over to the computer and it kind of. Sw- is it a man I can't remember but it kind of swallows her up and then she comes out as like a it's kind of real. robot yeah, computer yeah. person I mean that's uh, Ultron's not going to look that bad <laughs> no but in 2015 having this sort of like war of, of wills between these two virtual characters basically being their visual cortexes pulsing as they speak and have a debate between Paul Bettany and James Fader about who's going to... That's not acceptable. I'll tell you what, what What was appalling. I thought that was good, to be honest. I thought it done quite... I thought it was fairly good. Oh, but there's a bit where he's kind of learning this? stuff and they show like they to a picture of Gandhi. Yeah, you know, like when he's just going through like a kind of Wikipedia and it's just that... I mean, I thought that was well well, cheesy. Well, but. but my thing was, with the whole... Just to go back to Age of Ultron, like, I thought they misread what Ultron's aim should be in that... Well, I think it's a thing from the comics, or one version of the comics, certainly, where it's this great idea where Hank Pym in the comics creates Ultron and says, I need you to save the world. I want you to protect the world. And Ultron's like, got it, no problem. And it's the best kind of villain, where it's like, rather than sort of going, oh, I need to destroy the Avengers, because he sort of, so Ultron goes online, scans everything, and goes, I need to protect the world. The only way to do that is to destroy all of humanity because you're the ones who are destroying the planet. Right. And then suddenly it's great. It's yeah. like, oh, right. Yeah, he's, he's at, the only logical conclusion you can have if you look at the world and history and now is to sort of go, get rid of these guys because yeah. they're an absolute nightmare. But they never did that in the film. It was more sort of ultra and sort of going, I oh, just need to destroy the Avengers. Why? Kill all of us. That gives us a, a much greater uh, motivation. Come after me, Ultron. But yeah, that conversation between the two of them I don't know if it's alright. I could have done that. I could have done. Well, it was odd because I like, thought that kind of eyes killed Jarvis. That's sad. I thought I was pushing it a bit. Yeah, and then but then Jarvis. It's alright because Jarvis wasn't killed. He went and hid in the internet. Yeah, and that's not. <laughs> and like the whole bit we're having a conversation, going someone's in the internet constantly thwarting. And I was like, who do you think it is, <laughs> Spider Man? <laughs> what are you talking about? Jarvis has gone missing. Spider Man has got Snapchat though. So. <laughs> Yeah, no, uh, I uh, loved uh, Superman 3. And I was so pleased that I still enjoyed it now. Like, the thing is, I think Five part of it is... <laughs> I think part of it is, like, I... Uh, 
it's the first, obviously the first one I've ever seen Richard Pryor in. And I was like, this, who's this guy? He's like, like the bit where he's like a, a general in the army. Mm. It's just like loads of Richard Pryor sketches, essentially, isn't it? Mm. I'm going to pretend to ski off a building. I'm going to, you know, do some bad computer programming. It doesn't matter what he's doing. I just want to see Richard Pryor. So I'm happy with it. Fair enough. It's a film for you then, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you weren't bothered by Lois just going off on holiday. Quite similar to um, Pepper Jarvis. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh. No, you, you sort of you needed to take Lois off the board to give Lana space, didn't you? That yeah. was the, the thing. Who went on to play Clark Kent's mum in Smallville, didn't she? she that did. was bad, Smallville. So the South London link in Superman 3 is the West Virginia coal mine where Gus is left at the end is actually Battersea Power Station, which I guess they just like stack some coal up. Seems an odd sort of they probably they were, they were shooting in Pinewood. They yeah. probably thought, oh, we need this scene. Yeah, that'd be near as well. Power station, wouldn't it? I suppose. Yeah, it's possibly a big open industrial space that you can fill up with stuff. Yeah, I thought it was odds just at the end of the film as well. Yeah, spoilers. We haven't seen Superman three, but Superman makes a point of leaving all the other baddies to be picked up by the authorities, but flies Gus away. Because Gus sort of goes at the computer with an axe at one point and says, like, oh, you're not all bad. But Lorelai's... Yeah. Uh, there's a bit where like she's cheering him on. Yeah. He's got super hearing. Pick <laughs> up on that. She, there's no way Pamela Stevens should be left to be arrested. Yeah. That was my only qualm about the film. Four and a half <laughs> <What an injustice>. <laughs> <laughs> One of the reasons why they would have come here to shoot is the sort of craftsmanship of the people that were around at the time. Yeah, so right. the guy who came up with the system to make him fly, so this guy Zoran... Heretic. Um so he, he came up with this whole system and then you know the British craftspeople made it happen and so they shoot the first two at Pinewood as well yeah oh, right and this is around the time when they were doing Star Wars sequels which would have is yes. that Pinewood I know it's England uh, no they shot Star Wars Elstree was it oh right, right. should know but anyway um, the motion control stuff that was de- developed for Star Wars where you can make the cameras do repeatable moves that fed into the um, the Zoptic system, it was called. And um, basically they can repeat these moves so they can program the, the, the camera to move in a particular direction. So um, Christopher Reeves is staying still, camera flies around him and it looks like he's you know twirling around. Um, the innovation on this was they had this screen which was locked to the camera. So they had a projector and the camera sort of in one device. So the projector is projecting the background onto the screen. Christopher Reeve is stuck on a pole with a mould underneath his body, which is supporting him. So there's no wires, he's not dangling, he's just supported the whole time with this camera just filming this screen. And if they want to um, make it look like you know he's zooming towards the camera, they had the two, the projector and the camera, were linked together. So you can have the... Spin it around. Yeah, you can spin around, the camera can zoom in while the projector's staying the same, so that it looks like he's getting closer. Really, really clever stuff. Oh, wow. And this is all for the first one, yeah? This is this was then progressed through the to the third one. So I think Zoran, the guy who invented it on the first one, wasn't involved in the third one. But the guy who was looking after the the photographic effects in the third one um, was you know was the, you know he was he's now become part of the kind of heritage of, of British craftspeople. Where you know his son now works in the industry in London. He's a visual effects producer behind lots of the big films that are happening now. Same thing with the special effects supervisor on the film. He was the uncle of the Corbolds who are the special effects, you know, masterminds of today. They're on every single film, smashing stuff up, blowing things up. So, um, you know, it was great to see that, you know, they, they shot it in London, but it was also 
the British, you know, the teams that are still behind things even today, uh, making it all happen. Oh, this is the kind of thing Stephen brings for music. <laughs> Superman 3. Uh, watch the trees. This time is going to be the best time of all.